Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. Topic for the next couple of episodes will be substance abuse and substance abuse disorders in veterans. Um, in today's episode, we have two guests with us, Trevor Siver and Henry Yukin. Trevor is an Army veteran who served from 99 to 2004. And during his service, he experienced multiple traumatic injuries. And because of these injuries, was prescribed opioid painkillers during his treatment. And this use of opioid painkillers led to a long-term battle with substance use. Henry shares a story about addiction and how it affected his life and how he was able to overcome this addiction with support from the VA and Dr. Anthony Miller, who will be in our next episode. Also with us is Henry Yukin, who's an Army veteran who served multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and ended his service in 2013. When he ended his service, he faced many struggles with integrating, reintegrating into civilian life. Uh, because of this, Henry had turned to drugs as a coping mechanism he shares with us about his deployment uh, and the injuries he sustained during his deployment, as well as his struggles with reintegration, how drug use made its way into his life, and since then, how he's been able to come back from it. I really thought these two interviews highlight how easily drug abuse disorders can come about and how the challenges that veterans specifically face increase these risks. I hope this episode reaches you well, and let's begin. So you're from West Branch, you served, when did you serve? Uh, 99 to 2004. 99 to 2004, so right after 9-11. Yeah. Crazy, or during. Um, during. Okay, and you were? I was a cook in the Army. Uh, yeah, I was stationed in Korea. Oh, first. Just like all over the place. Oh yeah, I never served in the States. Oh, wow. So, uh, I joined while I was a junior in high school in the delayed entry program, and I was going to go in as a parachute rigger, and I took the ASVAB, and that's the test, of basically a placement test. Yeah. And I did pretty good in school, like, had a pretty good ACT score, was pretty confident about how I did on the test, and the recruiter, after I took the test, says, oh, man, you fucked this bad boy. You, you really messed this up. I thought, really? Wow. Okay. I believe this guy is freaking E6 in the army, you know? So he goes, well, since you did so bad, <laughs> you can either be a infantry, a tanker or a cook. And he showed me the videos and I thought, well, shit, man, make me a cook. Yeah. You know? uh, so I went, you know, the, after I graduated high school, I, I went to basic in Fort Knox, Kentucky, went to quartermaster Fort Lee. Uh, they, they had a, kitchen that we learned how to chop some stuff up. We really didn't learn anything. I mean, oh, there so they didn't so like teach you how to cook. Well, not really. They show you how to cut ribs and you worked in a kitchen. Uh, basically like one day, all I did was cut onions, you know, for eight hours. You, you basically got familiar with the equipment, Yeah. you know, and it was what you put into it is what you got out of it basically too. There sure. were so many people and so few instructors. It, it was up to you. Uh, so basically I didn't learn much, but then I went to Korea uh, and I remember my first day there, my first sergeant goes, you must love to cook. I go, man, I've never cooked a day in my life. <laughs> and he goes, well, you, you had a GT score of 125 or whatever. You could have done whatever you wanted to in the service. And I thought, son of a bitch. 
So the recruiter was filling a quota, uh, and I was mad about it for a while. In Korea, we had to work from 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning, till 8.30 at night, six days a week. And if you were late one day, you worked your day off, so I usually work seven. And <laughs> thank God that was the first place I went because the hours were just unbelievable. I calculated up, like, if I worked at McDonald's, I would have made over $200,000 with the hours I put in. Jesus. You know. What were you getting paid at the time? Uh, like $600 every two weeks or something like that. Oh, wow. But, yeah. you know, your, your barracks was where yeah, you had no bills whatsoever yeah, unless you everything. wanted them. Yeah. So I had a cell phone. I think that was like $40 a month. But otherwise, it was all super useful party money. In, super yeah. useful in Korea, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no. I actually... It was a new. It was the first one I ever had. Oh, you know, yeah, that's so, I guess that's the time when it was. Yeah, it was ninety nine, two thousand. So it was like, wow, I can, you know. What kind of phone was it? I think it was a Nokia. I mean, yeah. I went through a lot of them because I lost them. So those indestructible Nokia birth. Oh yeah. Yeah, those are good. So, where can we back up a little bit? Sure, so, like, absolutely. Where, sorry. where, uh, where'd you come from? Uh, Stanwood till I was twelve. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we. That's moved in Iowa. Up. Right? That's in Iowa. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's about thirty miles from here. And then when I was just going to junior high, we moved out to a farm that my family owned that was abandoned for like 12 years. We still had horses out there and stuff, but the house was hadn't been lived in for like 30 years. So we had to remodel and fix it up. Um, you know, like when I, we first went out there, there was raccoons living in the upstairs and stuff. It was a big job. Yeah. A lot of hard work, but we fixed it up, and I just loved living out there. Um, it was a blessing to be out on the farm. Uh, went to high school at a high school called North Cedar, which consisted of Stanwood, Mechanicsville, Clarence, and a town called Loudoun. Um, graduated from high school, and I went to the Army a month later. Uh, Why did you? How did you become interested in joining the military? Uh, the movie Forrest Gump. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I knew that I didn't want to go to school right out of high school. I thought I just did 12 years of school. The last thing I want to do is I'm not going to do well if I go to college. I knew that. Sure. Mm-hmm. The, the, my lifestyle at the time, you know, and I just didn't want to go to school. And I, and of some of the decision was I'd all stay in shape. Um, <laughs> seriously, I, it had a little bit to do with the movie Forrest Gump and my best friend was joining the Marines. I originally tried to join the Marines. And when the guy came to my house, you know, they give you a little interview and I'm not going to lie to a government official type thing, you know? So he asked me how many drugs I did. And so I was honest mm-hmm. and I looking back, it wasn't anything crazy, but you know, I tried about everything a couple times and I was honest with him and he comes back and said, my commander said, you're a walking medicine cabinet and you're not Marine material. Mm-hmm. This is before nine 11. Mm-hmm. probably wouldn't have been that way. But so I, he goes, you might want to call the army. So I called the army and did the same thing, told him the truth. And he says, so you smoked marijuana how many times? And I can't remember what I said, but it was a lot and every day for five years or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he goes, so three times. I go, no. He goes, so three times. Oh yeah. Three times. <laughs> and my recruiter even bought me the tea to pass the test. Oh man. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. yeah I don't want to get anybody in trouble with that. So this is, I want to tell the truth. What happened? Yeah. So, uh, I quit smoking marijuana for the test and I had this new energy. I, you know, I, I've smoked every day for ever. And, uh, it did kind of feel like there was a cloud over me, but you know, I was self-medicating. 
Um, and so how did you, you know, it's always interesting. I, I have a family member who has been a drug addict for a long time. Yeah. And, um, how did you start marijuana? getting into marijuana or, or whatever you did? Yeah. Well, the group of friends I ran with, we were, we were bored. Yeah. You know, we would try to find fun any way we could in a small town in Iowa, but we were, we were bored when I look back. And we just wanted to have some fun. Uh, a lot of the uh, people we looked up to, you know, were pro-marijuana. And I think it was just inevitable that we were going to end up that way now. But all my friends who started doing drugs with me all dropped out of high school. And, you know, it was like they couldn't do both. And I stayed in school. I still cared about studies and my sports. Um, but I watched them one by one drop off where the next thing you know, I'm going to school and all my buddies are gone. Yeah. Um, and the first time I tried it, I thought, finally, same thing with drinking. You know, I, I have an abusive childhood. Sure. A lot of issues with that. Physically, um, mentally? Both. Yeah. Both. Uh, my first memory of life is being molested by my uncle. Oh, okay. So uh, the problem with that is, is that my family to this day protects him. So a child's defense is to block it out. Yeah. But I knew it happened my whole childhood. Didn't realize how it, was an effect, it affected me. Um, my senior year, I was cutting weight for wrestling. I was at a party, so everybody else was partying downstairs. And I was upstairs in my buddy's room. And 2020 came on on a Friday night at 9 o'clock or something. And the show's title was uh, Child Abuse and the Effects It Has on Adults. You know. Yeah. And I remember just this hitting me, going, holy cow, that happened to me. And it worked for the first time. I actually consciously admitted it to myself. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of buried it again. Um, but as I got into my early adulthood, it bothered me more and more. And so I um, didn't say much about it or anything. I was ashamed to tell anybody about it. When I got out of the Army is when, it, when I had questions from my parents, you know, and uh, to this day, you know, I wouldn't go to Christmas because he'd be there. Uh, it really came out when I had my wedding and didn't invite him. Mm -hmm. And my other aunts and uncles wanted to know why. Why didn't you invite us? Mm -hmm. I finally just came out and said, because the dude molested me when I was three, you know, and there it is. There it is. My grandma still doesn't know. I had a cousin that just committed suicide about mm, a month and a half ago, 32 years old. I go to the visitation. He's there. I'm standing next to my mom. They come out of the visitation, the area to visit the casket and, my mom sees him and my other aunts and uncles walking towards us. And my, my mom whispers to me, grandma still doesn't know. I go, yeah, mom, I, I know. So from a young age, I was forced to kind of deal with this myself. Um, I have kids now. And if someone did that to my child, I would at least call the authorities. Um, I would handle it. And instead of doing that, my parents to this day still, just want me to deal with it. Yeah. So it's kind of this ongoing thing. Um, the other abuse, I don't want to really get into too much. Sure. Uh, forgot where I was going with that. That was a lot of 
the reasons I started doing drugs. Yeah. So you you'd started doing drugs before you got in the military. Oh yeah. And then stopped doing them. Yeah. While you were in the military. Yep. yep. And you served for five years. Five years. Yep. I drank a lot. Well. And I probably smoked weed a total of twenty times in that five years when I was on leave and stuff. Okay. And there was some drug use here and there, but nothing really. Like when I first got over to Germany, mushrooms were legal. Oh wow. You could go into these flower shops and buy them over the counter. They were called dream pillows. <laughs> and you were supposed to put them underneath your pillows and they would chase your bad dreams away, right? But you open up this cloth package and you haven't ate the mushrooms for like 15 Deutschmark. So we did that a lot. Uh, but mostly it was drinking, hardcore drinking. Mm-hmm. A lot of drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but yeah, I didn't really smoke marijuana anymore. I, it, was, it was nice. I think that people shouldn't smoke marijuana until they're developed, uh, you know, maybe in their mid twenties and stuff because you're still developing and it's like a rest of development. When I started smoking, I lost so many years of development because I was so baked. I couldn't freaking, you know, I, I thought I was shy, but really I was just so <laughs> stoned in school. I didn't want anybody to know. Mm-hmm. And so oh, I just wow. kept yeah. to myself. Yeah. Well, then I met John, I was working at Hardy's and I'm up front taking orders. I help you. You know, when, when was this? Is this, this before was in '96 when I was in high school. Okay, yeah. John would be in the back making burgers, singing Pink Floyd like at the top of his lungs. You know, and I just looked. I admired his charisma, and it's like, man, I wish I could do that. You know, and just be kind of. So one day I was up there, and John comes up to me. He goes, "Are you stoned?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, "You got any more?" Yeah. Well, you're giving me right home. Okay. John had a lot, a big part of my life, so. I give him a ride home. We stop on this gravel road and smoke, and he's in the car going, woo, you know, yeah, and just this energetic little ball of energy, and I go to his house and drop him off, and he goes, you work tomorrow? Yeah. What time are you off? Five. He goes, all right, pick me up at five, and we're best friends ever since, uh-huh. and he broke me out of my shell. Yeah. He became my best friend. I started dressing like him. I acted like him. I used his sayings. I lived vicariously through him kind of yeah. to develop myself. Then when I joined the army, I was able to kind of branch out and uh, find my own way. But I owe a lot of breaking out to him. Uh, but we, we kind of stopped smoking together so we could get into the service. And oh, So he joined the service too? He did. Oh. He was a year older than me. He joined the Marines. And the day he was leaving for mess, it was very sad. We had a huge party the night before. I was home. I was all upset about it and just kind of watching TV. I get a phone call. He says, come pick me up. I go, where? Meps? He's like, no, I'm home. I thought, what the hell? I grabbed my stuff and I run out the door. And I saw him and I says, man, I'm really disappointed you didn't go, but I'm damn glad you didn't. Mm-hmm. But then the next year I did go. There was no way I wasn't. Um... So kind of back to the service part of it. Yeah. Uh, in Korea there, those hours that we work were just ridiculous, man. And we have guys that would come in. I know I'm jumping around a little bit here. You're fine. Um, but this is leading to something. Uh, we'd have guys that were in the service for 10 years, and I'd catch them in the ration room where we kept the dry goods, sitting in the corner crying, saying, this is, you know, ridiculous. They can't work us like this. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what are you talking about, man? Because I didn't know any. <laughs> so then, uh, did my 
was doing my thing in Korea, and we had a field exercise. And uh, we didn't get a lot of sleep. You know, we got back in the morning. We are in the motor pool. We had to wash all the equipment. And uh, my, my sergeant says, all right, walk to Chow. I'm going to pull the MKT to the motor pool. I'll see you at the Chow Hall. Okay. And I'm walking down the street, smoking a cig. And next thing you know, I hear this crash. And before I can turn to see what it is, the MKT he was pulling came off of the five-ton truck and hit me in my left side. Um, the impact broke my left shoulder, my scapula, and then I was pushed forward and I was flying through the air and there just happened to be a fire hydrant where I was going. And I came down on the fire hydrant like I was biting into an apple. And I'd lost my lips, my bottom part of my face, basically. Um, then I fell on the ground and the trailer actually ran me over. And it was like I, it, I was a plow digging up ground. I remember the pressure of the trailer on top of me. And I remember everything just slowed down. I remember thinking, I'm going to die right now. This is it. I'm dead. And thank God it hit the barbershop on post. That's the only reason it stopped or who knows how long it would have been going. But I remember just hearing cracking and this, tr this tremendous weight on top of me. And it stopped and I couldn't move my arm. And I remember crawling out underneath. And I got up and I looked out and I saw all these people running towards me. When I stood up, they all they had their mouths open, you know, like, holy cow. And uh, I was kind of fading in and out of consciousness. Uh, they put me in a truck. And I just kept saying, where's my cigarette at? And <laughs> they took me to the little post medic shop there. And they were looking me over and I remember just screaming. I was in so much pain. They put me on a helicopter, flew me to Seoul. Last thing I remember is they shined a flashlight in my eyes, and I woke up like three days later. Um, that was my first real big accident. I mean, we rolled a car in high school and stuff, but it was nothing. This was pretty serious. Um, I remember my mom telling me that when it happened, my commander called her and said, Trevor was in a serious accident. We don't know if he's going to make it or not. We'll call you as soon as we know something. And then my poor mother hangs up the phone. And they didn't get a hold of her for 24 hours. Uh -oh. So my mom said she didn't sleep, you know, and then she was calling every name in the book that had government. She was calling courthouses and trying to get a hold of someone in Korea to see if her boy's all right. I was okay. I, I, looking back, on, I really didn't even think it was that big a deal. I mean, they had people come interview me about it. Uh, but that was the first time I was introduced to painkillers. And I had bottles of them. And... I didn't quite understand that they were addictive. I didn't know anything. We never messed with pills. This was new. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I honestly threw them a lot away. Didn't take them because I just like to drink. Um, did my thing in Korea. I was going to get, I had orders to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Uh, I, I didn't want to go to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I went to my commander. I says, can I go anywhere else? She goes, where do you want to go? I said, Germany. And two weeks later, I got a letter in the mail saying you're going to Germany. Thank God. And Germany was a blessing, man. It was, I got to work there. They put me in another chow hall, similar. Well, that whole year I was in Korea, I learned so much because we worked so much. Mm -hmm. So I was an E3 and I had sergeant knowledge. 
you know, because I had to do, after I got hurt, I had to do bookkeeping and rations. Uh, I learned basically every aspect of a kitchen in Korea. And so it was, it was easy for me to get promoted quickly, and everything was going great. Um, I remember going to work my first day there. I showed up at 5 in the morning. We made lunch. Everybody ate lunch. And I started making dinner. And they came up, what are you doing, man? I'm going to make a dinner. You're off work. Get out of here. Eight-hour day? Holy cow. I don't know what <laughs> do with myself. I started lifting weights again. You know, it, it was awesome. This is before 9-11 happened. Yeah. Um, then 9-11 happened. And everything changed. Uh, I remember a sergeant walked in. I was cooking in the kitchen. The sergeant walked in. He goes, uh, New York just got bombed. And I thought, oh, crap. And uh, we turned on TV. And we, we watched 9-11 unfold. And I remember these other soldiers that I don't think they understood the severity of what was going on. They were laughing about it. Going, Man, I'm, I'm not there. Holy shit. And I'm thinking, you idiots. Mm-hmm. So they closed down the post. I... I made so much food that day because everybody had to eat there. And my first sergeant walked in. He goes, back to B-Bags. We're leaving 72 hours. And I thought, oh, no. I, I was instantly scared. Um, I was in a NATO unit in Germany. It was pretty awesome, actually. It was called Allied Mobile Forces Land. And... Uh, we would be home for a while and then we would go to different countries and play war with their army. It was really cool. Actually, I got to be a lot of soldiers from all over the world that way. Um, so we went to Turkey. Uh, we actually came back to Germany and we were getting ready to get deployed and had a party. Uh, somehow I fell off of a three story building. Sorry, I'm laughing. It's okay. I can laugh about it now, too. I don't know the circumstances because I have retrograde amnesia, I think they said. It's all, I don't remember a lot of period of that time. I hit my head so hard. So I fell off this barracks building. Uh, I landed on my head. On the side of the barracks I fell off of, there was a cement railing. And I landed on that on my head. And then I actually fell down into a gully where the steps were and landed on the steps and I shattered my leg where I don't remember this, but my buddies told me that my heel was touching the inside of my knee Oof. and that the bones were sticking out this way and it was just kind of dangling there. Don't be survived. Right. Yeah. And I don't remember any of this. I don't, <laughs> I mean, I don't remember that period of time almost really. I don't remember. Um, when I did wake up in the hospital, I was able to look in the mirror and the left side of my head was the size of a basketball and it was just pitch black. I mean, it was black. And I had this big thing on my, I was a German hospital and I, I had this huge screws going into my leg and I'm like, what happened? And these commanders were there and they're saying, do you remember anything? I said, I don't remember anything, you know, uh, but I, that caused a lot of pain. So I got out of the hospital and I'm everybody else is deployed and I'm in the barracks all by myself. And I woke up one morning, I was in excruciating pain. I look over and there's this bottle of Percocet and I took two of those. And I remember laying there 
and all of a sudden going, ooh, and I just felt amazing. And that was the beginning of my opiate addiction. Um, my poor mother, every couple of years, got this phone call. Trevor was in this horrible accident. Did they get back here within 24 hours? Yeah, this time I think they did. I, I, I think so. Um, but that was the beginning of it. And, you know, I got them legally. Didn't think too much of it. Sure. Just... It's just another, at that point, it's like almost just another drug that the dog, doctors give you, right? Absolutely. And there was so, no education on there. Yeah, and so little was known back then about drug addiction right. with opiates and how powerful they really were. And, yeah. And, of course, me abusing them. Yeah. Um, that's when, you know, when I did run out, I started thinking about it and making connections to get more than what I was prescribed. Um, well, I guess I was in another kind of accident a couple of years later. Uh, that unit that I was in in Germany, that was in Mannheim, disbanded. And so uh, I was sent to the Big Red One in Wurzburg, Germany. And I just got there and I was in the kitchen about five in the morning and I'm walking with this big tub of eggs. And I go around the corner, and there was a deep fat fryer on the edge. There was like a wall in the middle that divided the kitchen. And I'm going around this corner, and there was grease on the floor from whoever cleaned it the night before. I slip. I go back to brace myself. I put my hands behind me, and my left arm went into the deep fat fryer. So my arm's in this deep fat fryer, and I'm trying to gather my legs underneath me, but the floor's slick. So I'm hung up on this dang thing, and my arm's just in there cooking. I finally stand up, and I hold my arm out, and I saw the skin just kind of drip down. And I thought, oh, no, here we go again. So, you know, my hands swelled up where you couldn't see my wedding ring, and uh, finally someone else came into work, this guy Joe, who was, uh, he was a contracted cook for us. And I remember his eyeballs just get really big, and he goes, let's go, man. I got into his car, and I'm punching his dash in pain. He's like, man, quit. Messing up my car, man. And we go to the emergency room. You know, they're about ready to get off shift at 6 in the morning. And I walk in, and they got the big eyes. And, you know, I remember they had to cut the skin off. And they uh, put silver, drink silver drone or something like that. And it was a pretty serious thing, you know, really bad burns. Uh, I had to go through 90 days of occupational therapy. And I still think that occupational therapist that day I walk in, and he goes, what's your goal? He says, well, I'm going to play guitar again. He goes, you're going to play guitar again. And so I had to go in there every day and just do these finger exercises, like touching your thumb to your, your fingers like this. And just doing that would bring tears to my eyes. Mm -hmm. Well, here comes more opiates. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I got, you know, 90 of them every two weeks or so. Every two weeks? Yeah. One time I, I thought I lost them. I just misplaced them. I told them I lost them. They gave me 90 more. So then I found the other ones. Um, so at this point, did you Yeah. Did you know you were addicted to them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I you know, noticed that I would get sick uh, and stuff. And I would take them. It just made uh, every conversation a little bit more interesting. And, you know, I, I'm the guy who has this sexual trauma that I'm running from. 
I have these accidents that I've gone through that I'm not making a big deal out of, but are having effects. Mm-hmm. And I'm in pain, like legitimate pain. Mm-hmm. So you convince yourself, well, I'm in pain. And these are from a doctor, so it's okay. Uh, but it just progressed. Yeah. You know how it is. You know, at first two are okay, then you need four. Well, then you need something even stronger and stronger until you get to the point where you're buying heroin. And so I got out of the Army on a medical discharge. I, I didn't want to get out. Um, I didn't have much of a choice. I mean, I couldn't run. I'm walking around the kitchen. I tried to work, and I'd be falling down because my legs would get out on me. And it got to the point where I wasn't able to perform my duties anymore. Because of because of all the injuries, my legs didn't. So my leg didn't heal properly after I fell yeah. off that building because I did not let it heal. I didn't want to be kicked out of the army, so I think I was off work for about a month after I got out of the hospital, and I go right back to the defect. I'm trying to work, and I had crutches, I had a cast or a big boot, and I wouldn't sit down. I'd be popping around the kitchen cooking, and I bent the metal rod that they put in there, and it felt like something was stabbing into my ankle. I go to the doctor. He goes, we got to get that thing out of there. It's bent. And that probably isn't very comfortable. So they, I'm, I know I'm hopping around. I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, so they, they scheduled a surgery for me in Germany. I go to the hospital and we're going to take the rod out and put a new one in. Halfway through the surgery, I have this tolerance. So I, I woke up Well, I saw the doctor. He was on the bed and he was, had this tool hooked up to me and he was yanking my kneecap was up here and I just remember him yanking on it and I go hey I'm up I was like put me out put me out <laughs> and then the doctor's like put him out no he stopped oh, but, you okay. know, but I saw him do it a couple times and then so I woke up and uh, I was mad about it because I woke up the doctor goes I wasn't able to get it out I don't have the right tool we're going to send you to Texas alright and Oh, man, that hurt so bad. I remember walking out of there just mad. And it got into my, my sergeant's van. He's anti-cigarette. And he, like, took my pack of cigarettes and gave me one, which was a sign. He's like, this dude's hurting. Yeah. So then I went to Texas and uh, had the surgery. It was kind of nice because when I got there, they didn't know I was coming. So I had to wait two weeks. They put me up in a hotel right on the river walk. Yeah. So I was able to have some fun there. Uh, I got the... The new rod in there, I still have that rod in my leg, holding it together. Um, so You were hard on yourself, sir. And my mom, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my mom. yeah. I, I just, you know, I didn't make a big deal out of it. I didn't really even care. Uh, got on a medical discharge and started working at restaurants. You know, it's the only thing I know. Is, and they don't pay for crap, but it, restaurants are a great way to get any you can meet people mm-hmm. and I still had my opiate addiction I, I, I think I had a prescription from the VA for like uh, 60 hydrocodones a month or something like that but I just sold those uh, to get money I eventually met a guy you know uh, in the kitchen circuits that could introduce me to a guy and I started doing heroin uh, and it just progressed uh, they that? liked my money. When was this? This was, oh gosh, it got bad in about 2000, 
2010. For, mm-hmm. From about 2005 to 2010, I kind of flirted with it. Um, it was mostly pills, though. I mean, I would literally... I worked in assisted living homes where I would make friends with nurses and literally I would show up to work at six in the morning, one would be outside smoking and I would get a couple to get me through till about noon. About noon, they'd come see me again, just like they were dosing me basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was one way to get it. I would literally make friends with people I knew had uh, medical problems. Uh, old grandmas. Yep. That's you know when the, about 2007s when oxycotton came along. The oxycotton 50s are fifty dollars a pill, but um, I would go to any length to get that. And once those came around, there was no no going back. Um, you can be pretty thrifty when you have an addiction. I had a system down pretty much where I have music equipment where I would go to the pawn shop the sticker's still on from the last time and they knew me there you know I would have taken my amplifier and a guitar whatever I had same deal as last time yep as soon as he got the money in my hand my phone was dialed up and 15 minutes later I had what I needed oh so it so it really started to consume you yeah absolutely it was my whole my whole thing Whole existence, everything, and it went on for years. And I met this one lady uh, through a friend who had a subscription, a prescription for seventy-five uh, oxycotton a month, fifties. I made friends with this old grandma. I would take him, take her to the pharmacy. I paid that lady's rent for three years. You know. Um, and she didn't charge $50 for him, thank God. And I was able to get by that way for quite a while. Well, then they started making the Oxycontins non-temperable where they put this sticky substance in it where you couldn't break it down and sniff it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that just sucked. And that's when people like me started moving to heroin. Um, and then you make friends to make that work that you usually wouldn't be friends with. Uh, I kept it hidden for a long time. And then it got to the point where I was part of my wife's computer doing shady shit. Well, you were married during this time. No, not yet. We no. were we got married after I got clean because they came wow. down to so my addiction progressed to the yeah. point of heroin abuse. Uh, around the time I met Dr. Miller, my wife now, my fiance at the time said, You need to make a choice. Um, she was done with it. So I tried cold turkey. About the second day of cold turkey, I was going insane. I was sick as a dog. Yeah. I got on the computer and I typed in help for heroin or something. And Dr. Miller's name was the first name that came up. So you were in Iowa at this point? Yeah, I was living in Iowa City. I was working in restaurants downtown. Uh, Never missed work. I always had a full-time job no matter what. I didn't have a choice. You got to feed your habit. Yeah. So you're going to work no matter what. Uh, Dr. Miller was on the phone with me. He says, when can you be here? I said, 10 minutes. He says, come on. I got to that office and I was in there, you know, oh God, you know, I remember it. And he goes, well, I want to, I have to explain this to you. And I'm going, just give me the bill. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, and that's when he got me started on this boxing program. I didn't know anything about it. I, so, um, let me back up for just yeah, a second. absolutely. So, you, you you reach sort of this point in your life where it was either I am going to marry this woman or she's going to leave me. Yeah. And you try to stop heroin, and so the, uh, Dr. Miller's the VA. Yes. And so you contacted the VA to to so did you reach out to the VA yourself to yeah. to find this out? It was okay. the first time I asked for help for heroin. Were you seeking care from the VA before this? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm 30% or 40% disabled through the, you know, I'm service-connected. Service-connected, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, combat vet and all that. So it's, it's been really nice. You know, I've never had to worry about medical. Um, I just uh, got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore, man. And it was hard because it's like a... A whole different lifestyle. How am I going to live without being high? There's no way. And like I said, I, it, it, she gave me the ultimatum. It, it was a combination of things. It wasn't so clear cut and dry as like my wife saying, hey, I'm going to leave you if you don't. It was, she wanted to help me. Um, she's found me on the floor with green shit coming out of my mouth. You know, like, I'm pretty sure I OD, but. Um, I was just putting her through hell. And she you really, you really reached a bad place. I was really bad. I was probably spending like two hundred dollars a day, maybe one hundred fifty dollars a day. Um, I got to the point where I was driving to Chicago with the dealer for him to get his big amount, and I would get it before it got cut. You know, like I say, it can be pretty thrifty. Um, I think I think you're, you know, uh, coming from a family that has a long history of severe drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've experienced this not personally, but like personally through others in my family. Right. And it becomes all consuming. Absolutely. And I don't think, you know, there's a misconception that even I think with with care providers, <coughs> and, and people don't understand it, right? They, they often think that, well, this person decided to do this. Right. And, you know, when you started getting those opiates, I don't think it was your decision to say, hey, I'm going to become addicted to these damn things. I didn't even know they were addictive. Yep. And all of a sudden, you become physically dependent upon them. Yeah. And it progresses, right? And you, I think you're really highlighting that. And um, Oh, you had said at the time, you were just getting medicine from the doctor because right. you were injured. Yeah. And I don't blame the doctors. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it's, it's tough because I have an addictive personality, or at least I like drugs from mm-hmm. the beginning. Like the first time I smoked pot or drank, I thought, oh, yeah, this is what I've been looking for, <laughs> man. All right. And then it's because, you know, I shielded the pain I was going through with the abuse, the child abuse and the the accidents and losing friends. And then, you know, when I was in the Army, man, I saw some bad shit, too. I've seen some shit that no one should see, as many veterans have. Yeah. And, uh, I don't want to get too specific with that, but sure. you guys can put two and two together, what guys go through. Um, so you're shielding all that. And then you build this tolerance and you just, you need more and more to feel the same way. And I tell you, when you're on it, you're, man, it's, I can write music. I can, I'm, I can please people. I can make everybody happy. I can work. 
And then on top of it, I have this pain where some mornings I wake up and I can't get out of bed. My wife has to pick me up and I have to, you know, grab the sheets and I have to roll out of bed. And no matter what I do, my back is just feels like someone's stabbing you in the back. And, you know, so you're going through legitimate pain. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you're kind of a drug addict to begin with. So you're trying to, you know, where's the, the truth? Yeah. Um, for example, like right now, my dad's in his seventies and my dad's been a clean cut guy. I've never seen my dad drunk. Never. The only thing he did really that was bad for him was smoke. Uh, he might've had his fun when he was younger, but when I came around, he didn't drink, he didn't do drugs, nothing. Well, now my dad is going through some serious back pain and with the opiate epidemic and the way things are right now, because of people like me, my dad is having a hell of a time getting anything for his pain. Of course. And the people who are suffering now because of this opiate epidemic are people like my dad. who He needs something because he's living in hell. Yeah. And they'll, they'll give him like, you know, a five milligram hydrocodone. He's like 300 pounds and six foot four, you know, come on. And uh, it's such a, a sticky subject because, you know, you have people that are in pain. At the same time, it can ruin your life. And I always used to say, I'd rather live a short life, not in pain, on this crap, than live a long life in pain. Well, I was making excuses. You know, I didn't want to stretch in the morning. I didn't want to take ibuprofen. That ain't going to touch me. Yeah. Um, so meeting Dr. Miller saved my life. Yeah, so you showed up on... Basically, the doorstep of oh, yeah, Dr. Miller. I walked Miller. in drunk, sick as hell. Yeah. My wife took me. She was so supportive. Um, Still, I think it says something that you thought, I'm going to go cold turkey right now. Like, absolutely. That's so that's... Yeah, it was... I didn't want to lose her. Yeah. So, yeah, I showed up there. He's explaining this drug's about... I couldn't give a damn. I just wanted to get, not feel sick. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the worst and I know you guys have heard people describe it. It is the worst. Uh, so it gives me the program. I, I take it. I put it underneath my tongue. And about a half hour later, I felt like I do right now. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, this is a miracle. And I'm going to give this a chance. Now, it wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's a miracle drug where you could just. That's it is a miracle, but. Were you, were, you, were you scared? Hell yeah. I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. I mean, I was on opiates for 12 years, maybe more, every day, uh, some some kind. You know, if I didn't have heroin, I could get hydrocodone, but I'd have to take 10 of them. You know, I'm taking 10, 10 milligram hydrocodones. What in the hell? Uh, there was no way. But, yeah, like I say, you know, with the assistance, I you know, I went from seeing Dr. Miller for every week once a week and it was still hard so did you do an inpatient program no no it was all okay. outpatient oh wow okay no, i had to pay bills i had to work yeah um but i was always in contact when i first started this box zone i i would run out too early yeah uh he did explain to me how it takes you right here and then it levels off. And so it doesn't matter if you take five of them. It's only going to affect you the same way one would. 
So there's no reason to abuse the drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not going to click in there. But I really did feel like I, it wasn't quite enough. So I'd always run out like a week or three days before. And so I would get kind of sick before my appointment. And I hated that. And this was the first time I could be honest with the doctor and say, look, I, I don't think this dose is quite adequate. And he worked with me. And once we got the the, uh, the prescription adjusted, I have not had any issues whatsoever. I've been on the same prescription for the same amount of milligrams and all that for three or four years now. And I haven't run out once. So it's a progressive thing where... Before, if you tell a doctor you need more or something, they're going, oh, what's this guy up to? Yeah, yeah. And it's not anything outlandish, like I want 20 of them a day or anything. It's, It was a legitimate, I'm working with you, let's figure this out. That's what the doctor's after listening. Hell yeah. yeah. And dude, like I say, the guy saved my life, man. Yeah. By being understanding, uh, not judgmental. And if, you know, he sees that you're putting in the work, you try. I even said, I even volunteered I had to come in throughout the month to have someone count my pills to make sure I wasn't taking more. Cause I felt like that would force me not to take more than I'm supposed to yeah, yeah. before we got the dose. Right. Um, so did you, did, did the suboxone treatment come in, um, concert with, uh, any sort of therapy or, Oh yeah. yeah. I, I saw him, like I said, at first it was like once a week and if I needed to see him, I could call and see him. Wow. Uh, and that happened. Um, as time went on and I started rebuilding my life, learning how to live again, learning how to feel sad, because when you're on opiates, there's no sad. You just you feel bad. Not anymore. You yeah. don't have to face life. And uh, I think that's a common theme. Yeah. Um, that I hear from people too. It's hard to yeah. feel sad. It's hard to have a bad day and not and handle it like someone who isn't a drug addict, I guess. Yeah. You know, you don't know how to cope with stuff like that. You don't want to. Emotions, you know, you know, there's a lot of drug addicts in the world. Absolutely. Emotions are difficult things to deal with. Yeah. Uh, Especially if you've never dealt with them. Even on a good day. Yeah. Even (laughs) on a good day. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it totally makes sense to me, you know, dealing with my family. It's just, you know, I understand it. I understand that it's a disease. Mm -hmm. It's something these people did not choose to do. Right, but it, it becomes a thing, and it's a uh, it's hard. Right, it's very hard. It is not something that we choose, but looking back on it, I could have been more responsible. But I, I didn't have the knowledge. I I I really was in a bad place where I didn't give a crap about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't care about much. Uh, my wife. Yeah. She sounds like a pretty amazing dude, woman. Dude, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well yeah. done. I, I don't know how I slap her. I don't. I do not. <laughs> and now she you should have left me so many freaking times. Imagine, you know, she goes on vacation with her family. Tell us how she comes home and her parents trusted me to feed their cats while they were gone. Man, you know, I can I, tell you, really, you're I, getting emotional about her, that, and yeah. like, it's it's like it gives me goosebumps just to hear you talk about yeah. her. It's really good. You know, this this sort of support system, I think, is really important to highlight oh, yeah. too. It's you, you know, when you hear people who've recovered um, from addiction, and I don't know if you ever truly recover from addiction, right? Like, you, you're always an addict, always. right? 
and It'll always be there. Um, I have some really close friends who've been clean for a long time, and um, it's always just this one, like some person in their yeah. life was like there, and uh, it's pretty a amazing. Constant. Here. Yeah, a constant. Yeah. Yeah, just I got lucky. Yeah, and you have kids now, huh? Dude, can you tell I us a little bit about kids. kids yeah. So, this is another thing I wanted to say too. When I met Dr. Miller, I didn't have a pop. I was dead. I, obviously, after everything I did, I had didn't have a pop to piss in that. And uh, since I've gotten sober, not that material items are that important, but they are. I mean, I have a farm, a 11 acre farm with a nice barn in it. My band could practice in, it's, you know, we have a nice farmhouse. I have my wife, I have a great job at the VA. I, I supervise the kitchen here. Yeah. Um, and then I have my kids, my boys, three Shay, and then I have a one year old daughter, Tess, and then one of them on the way. Yeah. I'm stoked. Yeah, that's super exciting. It yeah. sounds like you're really doing well. Yeah, I'm getting emotional. They're going to be going in every which direction. You know, when you start. That is a big helper to keep you clean, too. Is you look at that little thing, like, I'm responsible for this. Yeah. I'm not going to mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it. how has the long term care been? Um, Excellent. Yeah, do you, do you still seek care? Yes. Yeah. Um, start out once a week. Then you go to once every two weeks, once a month. And now I see Dr. Miller once every four months. If I need to talk to him, I can at any time. Sure. But it's gone to the point where he trusts me. I trust him to the point where he's like, Trevor's doing his thing. And I don't have to see him every week or every three months or, you know, it progressed out. Like I say, though, if I, if I do need something like with my cousin, committed suicide that was pretty hard so I I needed to talk but um it's it's changed my life yeah you know it's really changed my life so one last question for you yeah um first off if there's anything else you want to say you should, you should just like talk to sure, you about it. Sure, but sure. what would you tell you know, if a veteran listens to this podcast that's struggling with drug addiction himself, what would you say? What would you? What would your advice be to them? Would really be depend on the drug. I um, that there are people out there uh, that will genuinely care about you that are interested in helping you. Uh, we all know the path. You know, it's not romantic. It's been done before and you're if you're in addiction and you know it depends on the person but a lot of times you're in denial and you know where you're going it's been done and you feel hopeless no one can understand what you've been through uh, it's not going to be easy but if you're a heroin addict or an opiate addict I strongly suggest Suboxone. I'm an advocate for Suboxone. And there's the argument out there where it's, oh, you're just exchanging a drug for another one. I, I hate that argument because the difference in my life now compared to my life when I was on heroin is obvious. You know, uh, 
I understand people are skeptic of it, but they have to like listen to someone who's actually gave it an honest shot. Mm-hmm. And like I say, I'm an advocate for Suboxone. And that was my big thing coming on here is I wanted to get it out there. Absolutely. Because I think people have a, a wrong idea about it. Because, you know, I tried methadone. Methadone still gets you kind of high. There's uh, room for abuse with methadone. And it doesn't uh, it doesn't have the same effect. At least it didn't for me. I just ended up abusing it. Sure. And like I said with earlier with Suboxone, you, there's no reason to abuse it because it's going to take care and that's it. And... If you give it an honest shot and just give it time and seek counseling at the same time and education, uh, it, it will, it can, it has, it has the, um, the possibilities of saving your life, man. And given you were able to find Dr. Miller uh, via Google. It was like, the first site that came up. First site that came up. Do you think it's pretty easy now if you need help from the VA to find resources. Yes. Just being able to hop on and yeah. see that right away. You can go to the ER right now and say, I'm a heroin addict, and they would have you connected to the Coralville Clinic. That's great. And next thing you know, you're in an office, and you got a guy explaining how he's going to save your life. Fantastic. Yeah. And, then, you know, I know there are other problems with the VA and stuff, but this is one aspect of the VA that I can't say anything bad about at all. For sure. Yeah. Well... That's it for today's podcast. Right on. Uh, thanks for coming, Trevor. I really thank appreciate, you. It, I appreciate man. it. It's really cool to hear your story and, and get it out there. And uh, uh, thank you all for listening. And that's it. The second interview here is Henry Yukin, an old friend of mine from uh, grade school and high school. He is a Army veteran who served multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, he had a substance use disorder that he overcame as well. And uh, Brandon and I interviewed him recently. And uh, here's his story. Welcome back to the Vets First Podcast. As always, Brandon is here with me. Hello, everyone. And today we're doing an interview with uh, one of my childhood friends, Henry Yukin. He's an Army veteran um, and suffered from uh, uh, drug addiction. And we uh, really thank him for coming on. Welcome, Henry. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Henry, you're from you're from Perry, Iowa, where I grew up. Um, yes, sir. Uh, why'd you end up joining the military? What led you to that? Uh, you know, honestly, like there's it, there's several factors that kind of pushed me into the military. Um, one being my father was in the military, um, and he 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 died when I was young, so I didn't really get to know him. So, like, part of me was like, oh, let's join the military at least at least I can see that part of his life that I never get to see. Um, and then also, you know, like I kind of started falling in, you know, getting a little, getting a little weird, getting a little wild with the partying and stuff like that. And without much direction, the military was probably one of the best things I ever did for myself. Cause like, I, I basically I'm knowing myself now, like where I'm at as an adult, I'm pretty sure like I would have either been in and out of prison or just, just scraping by somewhere with some, you know, nonsense job or something. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So where'd you, where'd you do your, uh, uh, you joined the army. Um, yes. Yep. And where'd you do your basic training at? 
I actually went to uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. They call it Relaxing Jackson. Relaxing Jackson? <laughs> you know, but I, I went there because when I initially joined, I wasn't a combat MOS. Um, I joined as a fuel supplier at a, at the, actually up in Boone, Iowa, there's an aviation unit there. And that's, that's kind of, that's where I was at. Uh, so that's why I ended up going there. And then later on, I ended up having to go to another like infantry style school or whatever. Um, you know, uh, what, for the non-military person, what is a non-combat MOS? Uh, basically it, it, it. It basically breaks down into two roles in the military. You have the combat MOS, which are the guys that go out, you know, like, or sorry, sorry, the individuals, guys, women, individuals that go out and basically take the fight to the enemy. Then you have the other side, which are the support MOSs. They're the ones that support the individuals going out to take the fight. So, like, they're, they're your mechanics, your fuel supply, your everything but infantry basically everything but directly shooting at, at the enemy what does MOS is stand, what does mos stand for military occupational specialty oh, okay. so it's basically like training like so when you go to you go to basic training once you complete basic training you'll go to ait advanced individual training which is where you will learn your mos military okay. occupational <laughs> So many three-letter acronyms and stuff like that. It's insane. One thing I found out <laughs> being at the VA and working with veterans like you is that we are learning a lot of different acronyms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So, um, yeah, man. So, so you know, we're having you on this um, episode about substance abuse disorders. And, um, mm-hmm. what, what, how did you end up getting into that and, what like what led down that path? Honestly, um, man, when I got out, I got out of the service with the more than May of 2013, and once I actually left the service, I found that I don't know if it was I missed it or like I mean it it that that every single day I knew what I was doing even though I didn't know what I was doing in the military you know like it was like everything's different every single day but having that like chaotic work pattern was awesome for me and then going from that to okay well now you have to find a nine to five job that's boring as hell and you know especially without like with 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 zero reintegration coping skills i mean they teach us they taught us a little bit you know like how to do a resume and you know like all this stuff is they don't teach us emotionally how to come back and leave the military in the past that's a huge thing is they like when you're done with this they're like i'm getting kind of like stirred up about it right now it's just like they don't teach you how to become not that anymore sure so you know like so like you come back in the world and it's you know at, at the height i was i was in charge of like i mean millions millions of dollars worth of equipment as a sniper reconnaissance team leader you know like i had all kinds of weapon systems you know like stuff that aided our, our job that i was signed for that I was you know like 
I was in charge of. Like, you know, like if this stuff went missing, I it would be my ass. And now I come back to the civilian world and it's like it's like that never even happened. Well, you know, yeah, like that was like, what do I do? It, yeah. You know, like and, and when like you walk around and just like the streets of, you know, like Des Moines or, you know, like wherever you're from and stuff like that. It, it's like the the, the love, level of this sounds weird, but like the level of respect that you commanded is gone. And that's a weird thing to miss, I guess. I, you know, it's it, like going from that to like being, you know, like a, a peon at a normal nine to five job just does not work. It does not work for a lot of people. So like within myself, I think that kind of created a, a need or a gap to do something about it. So, you know, start partying and uh, let's see, like, like I've, I've always smoked weed, you know, um, not, I've never denied that or anything like that, but like that kind of took me into, you know, then like, well, I need more because this isn't doing enough for me. This is more just like helping me calm down, not help me like, deal with what I thought deal with some issues but really when you're doing drugs and stuff like it's you're not dealing with it you're using that as a coping mechanism or like basically just not to feel feelings like and that's what I use like my my drug of choice was when I came back is methamphetamines due to you know rural rural Iowa it's it's just really easy to come across Mm -hmm. um backing up just a little bit yeah yeah I have a question then Brandon has another question for you. So um, when you were in the military, you were deployed. Yes. Yes. But where were you deployed to? Um, I went to Iraq a handful of times and Afghanistan as well. Multiple deployments. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. And and during that time, did you see combat? Did you have any um, experiences with injuries or anything like that? I, I was never directly injured in other than um, like loss of consciousness via um, like IDs and mortars and stuff like that. Um, so no actual like flesh wounds for me. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, like I. Um, so you suffered you suffered some blast injuries then. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like uh, like IDs. I was. Um, let's see. You can. Uh, took a mortar around, like really, like fuck. I think it was like six feet away. Blew me over by an ice truck in Iraq, and then probably the last most substantial one was I was blown off the top of a roof in Afghanistan by an RPG, and then I landed like square on my back, like with a bunch of like combo equipment, demo equipment, you know, and all of that stuff. So that one kind of <laughs> took its toll. My back's kind of messed up after that, but so it sounds like injuries to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so you suffered a number of um, TBIs. Then, is it safe to say you ha- had a few TBIs? We were. In yeah. I, I. I. Yeah. I see. Like the. <laughs> I don't want to get too too world too wild into it, but so like my my TBI, like I, it's checked in the, in in the terms of like I understand it. So I can, I can preface things to people I'm meeting and say, Hey, this is going to, you know, if you notice this, this is what it is. Uh, that's only because I know myself as well as I do. I must say BA hadn't been, has not been 
the biggest help. But also, like, I haven't been, like, actively seeking, like, a lot of help for my TBI. Because it's not, I've, you know, memory loss and some stuff like that. I don't have headaches or anything like that. I used to have migraines, which I thought was uh, to do with the TBI. But, I mean, I haven't done anything for either. And, like, I think that's just more my well-being. Sure. But yeah, like I, when I went to talk to the TBI doctor, I know at the VA uh, in Des Moines and stuff, it was just real weird. <laughs> sure. um, you know, he was there once, was it once every other month, and he just rushes people in, bam, 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 bam. So like, there's not a whole lot of like actual, and this is this is also like two, three, four years ago. So like they, you know, this is when they were like tearing down part of the old building or something like that to put in new. Uh -huh. And it was you had to go through like this fucking this dust hallway. Like it was just like a really sketch, sketchy situation. Anyway, like <laughs> it seemed like it in my mind, I guess. Sure, but sorry, yeah. right, I, I got a little off track there. No, 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 you, you're perfect. Uh, uh, before we keep going. Um, if you don't feel comfortable discussing anything, just say you don't, and we'll just cut that. Yeah. Off. Well, I'm I'm an open book. It's just I I haven't talked about a lot of stuff in a while, so <laughs> I don't. You know, that's one thing yeah. we're really respectful of that because some veterans, um, you know, I know you personally from when we were younger, but like, yeah. you know, it, it it can be hard, and so if it's difficult or you don't want to talk about it, just let us know, and we'll just move on beyond that. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. Perfect. So Brandon's going to ask a question. Cool. Yeah, you were talking about um, once you left the military and trying to reintegrate the civilian life. Um, and it sounded like it was a bit of like a, a loss of identity. Like how did that, how did that onset, how did that, how did that feel? And were you able to, were there other vets that you were able to talk with? Um, like, did you know that was something that was going to be coming on or was it kind of like a, more of a novel thing. I definitely didn't realize that it was even going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like when you first leave the military, like you're all like, you're, you're, you're pretty much alone. So like the, even the thought of like reaching out or talking to another vet for something like that just seems so far-fetched in my in my eyes you know like so I, i'm assuming that there's a lot of people that feel that same way um because you kind of you're doing it by yourself when you leave the military mm -hmm. um yeah and you're, you're just kind of like it, it's like it's weird but like you go from like the community of you know we do this together and it's like bam now you're out and it's like you do this alone Mm -hmm. is what is which the feeling is is the feeling i got at least you know you know you're not the first person to say that to us um yeah one of the other veterans slash care providers for the va that we talked to rob otto he's a suicide prevention coordinator here in iowa he he said the same thing mm -hmm. it was a very difficult transition to go from um the military to civilian life very quickly it happens very quickly and i don't think yeah. you go from being part of a unit to what should be reintegrating into a larger community like say aka society or whatnot and uh, it kind of sounds like you end up being like a man on an island trying to figure it out so definitely like 
resources just to like it seems like once you've left the military the resources resources are gone so that 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 sort of led into you beginning to do drugs yeah and you talked yeah. about it already but um it if you're willing uh mm-hmm. i'd like to hear about when you hit rock bottom and why what mm-hmm. how you came out of that like what what made you change i so i guess my is like my story is a little bit different um and it may just be perception but there never really was a rock bottom for me Sure. Um, so I've never been arrested for my drug use. I've never, it honestly never, I, I don't want to say it didn't change me because a hundred percent fucking, it definitely changed me. Um, but for me, it was more of a medication. I mean, it was like, so I was going to the VA when I first got out and everything and they were doing the thing at the same time, like the military was doing where the, here's fucking 10 different types of medication. Good luck. And I was like, no, I need therapy. You know, like I need other stuff, not medication. So I kind of took that and it's like, well, screw all this medication. I'm going to do it myself. And I mean, it worked. If you want to call it works, like I didn't feel feelings. I didn't deal with anything, which is, which, you know, as long as I kept doing that, that was like the status quo. Like I was getting by, um, you know, I wasn't social at all. Didn't talk to anybody. I mean, shit, like, I, you know, a good friend of our Travis, you know, like, I hadn't seen him in a while. Like, that was a, a big thing, not seeing him, you know, like, he's, he's right there in the morning and everything. Um, oh, man. All right, so another TBI thing. So my mind just went blank. Like, what were you? Uh, you're good. We're talking about, we're talking about, like you said, you never really hit rock bottom. um, Yeah. And you were just getting by day to day, right? Like what, what made you decide, Hey, I want to stop doing this. (laughs) Disc golf. Like, like, honestly, God, it's, it's, it sounds insane, but I was ready for a number of years to be done doing that stuff. Um, Doing the math, you know, and all that stuff. So like in, in my own mind, I was, ready to be done i just needed that 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 catalyst or that that thing to like almost make me see that i really needed to stop and i started playing disc golf and i realized it, it sounds it's so it's so dumb it, it really is it's just like the dumbest little thing but like this thing that like i got to a point where i really wanted to get better at and i couldn't because i could only get this good because the drugs i were on were not allowing me to perform well Sure. Well, I don't know. It sounds. Yeah. It sounds like in a way that's like borderline therapeutic, right? Like kind of. Oh, gave, right. Yeah, like give you a goal. Like I mean, you say it's silly that you found it, but it's pretty awesome that you found it. Like whenever when you find that kind of thing that gets you into that, that it gives you a. Yeah. I mean, a purpose just for yourself, right? And that and that's the thing too is like it, it it's everything that I love about life, like outdoors, um, you know, getting around people that are good nice not drug addicted people you know like a lot of them are vets too you know there's a lot of a decent amount of vets here in the Des Moines area and everything for disc golf and it really has like it's changed my life completely <laughs> have you sought care at the VA for the drug addiction have you done therapy have you um uh 
I was, uh, I did a, uh, what was it? Inpatient stint there at the Dom domiciliary, the house or whatever, the, the, the inpatient thing at the VA in Des Moines. Okay. So I did that month, but that was an issue in itself because it was more dealing with homelessness and they made me stay at the homeless shelter downtown Des Moines for almost a month to prove that I was homeless. Because being, because living in the woods is not homeless, apparently. Hmm. Like, you, like if me, like, surviving in the woods and shit wasn't good enough of a case to say that I was homeless or whatever. Um, so then I went inpatient. And that's where, honestly, like, one of, one of the other things for the mental health and addiction side for me that helped was equine therapy. Like, if you couldn't tell, like, I'm, 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 I love the outdoors. I love animals, you know, like, all this stuff. And when they start doing, taking me to equine, ther equine therapy, it was unreal. I mean, like, like the therapy with horses, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, I could two ton beasts, but I couldn't control myself. Like that for me, like a like huge realization. So cool. That's, that's actually really neat. Um, that that yeah. So, so you've been, um, how long have you been clean? Like what, what is life like now that you're clean is versus before? Oh, it's phenomenal. Um, God, how many, it is funny. Like after basically after a year, I stopped even counting the days because it doesn't matter at a certain point, you know, like the days that I've been clean no longer matter because this is how I am. This is my life. This is where, you know, I'm going to be from here the rest of my life. So why count the days? But I do believe I'm, Oh, like 500 something like pushing two years almost oh excellent nice. man congratulations something i thought was i don't know i thought that was really interesting where you said you found disc golf and that kind of gave you purpose now you're able to get into that how did you how did you find uh disc golf for yourself like i guess i'm thinking the bigger scenario like if there were more things like that for say outgoing vets who are looking for like a purpose or a community or whatnot like, how did you find that? As are there, do you know of any other programs like that? Do you think programs like that would benefit? Uh, it just seems like what? a really good thing. Okay, so like I actually kind of got a little awesome story about this. So when I was inpatient at the VA, mm -hmm. um, they had like the the MWR, you know, like the whole thing where like you give them your ID and then they you know give you whatever. Like so, they had a like a, a six disc bag, shoulder bag. Mm -hmm. that you could give me your ID and you could rent that out for the day. And they let me go out. And at that time around the Des Moines VA, there was a disc golf course. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's now not, it's no longer there, but something like that. Like I would, honestly, like I would love to be a part of like putting a course in cause they have property there that would work for it. Um, but no, like I was able to get a bag and some discs and go out and throw some discs. And even though at that time, it was still, I mean, I was probably still, man, like six months away from actually like picking up disc golf and playing. Um, it was, if nothing else, enough to put it in my head. Mm -hmm. Like to like, okay, well, you know, this is awesome. I'm outside. I'm away from all the therapists and, you know, stuff like that. Being in the, the inpatient side of it, you know, um, it was fantastic. Super freeing. And I think something like that would be, very, very, very beneficial. But the thing about it is like, it's, it's, 
it can kind of be a double-edged sword, like, especially because there's, there's a lot of drinking that is involved with disc golf. Mm -hmm. Um, I was never a drinker. So like for me, it's, you know, it's whatever, but you know, a lot of people, if their substance abuse substance is alcohol, that might create an issue. Yeah. But, you know, doing something like on property, on their property or, you know, on the VA's property where they can, you know, somewhat control aspects of the game you know like okay no drinking no you know no smoking you know stuff like that then i think it'd be a fantastic way to get if nothing else to get vets outside Mm -hmm. sure so along those lines and something i want to ask you is uh you have a plan to do something like that right or want to do more veteran related disc golf can you tell me a little bit about that yeah yeah so um when was that like two weekends ago i had my first ever uh disc golf event where i did it um it's basically a friend of a vet's organization that does disc golf she's like i'm you know my i hurt my shoulder can you go ahead and do this for me i like you know wants the help so i went and did it for her and it was it went off it was awesome and i i did it so it was like no money you you just show up you get a raffle ticket you can win some stuff play some golf, meet some vets, good to go. So I've really kind of already laid the groundwork for something next, like whatever my next thing is going to be. And I want it to be like a people buy raffle tickets or whatever. Cause I, I mean, I collect discs as well, like old, like, um, like expensive, like plastic discs and stuff like that. So like I have more than enough stuff to put up for all the prizes. Um, and I have like, I'm, I'm very well connected within the disc golf or, or disc golf scene in Des Moines. And I'd like to do something like where <clears throat> like the proceeds go like all to, you know, like, uh, an organization of the VA or like homeless vets or, you know, like, a, a, you know, addiction prevention or, you know, some, some, something, something. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, that sounds fantastic. And I think you have a lot of really great stuff ahead of you. Oh, yeah. Great. Henry, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate your time. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks, Henry. Appreciate it, man. Nice meeting you. Yep, you too. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.